I'm going to ask you today to open up your Bibles to James chapter 1. We continue our saga. Our saga? is No, that's not the right word. We continue our study. I don't even know why I said that. Honestly, that's, that's like bizarre. I'm a little perplexed right now. We continue our study in the epistle of James. And it is really, really, for me personally, I probably say this every week, but for me personally, it has been just an amazing journey through this great epistle. I shared with you just about every single Sunday that we've been studying the epistle of James, that James is about faith. It's about living, active, vibrant, biblical faith. It's not about intellectual faith. It's not about theological faith. It is about a faith that believes God, knows God, trusts God. And as I have been sharing with you over the past few weeks, we define faith as fully entrusting ourselves to the plan, the purpose, and the person of God. That's a very simplistic definition. It's a Markism, named after me. No. But it, it is a simple definition. When we say faith, it's not about we believe that we can do something. It's on the contrary. It is faith in the plan and in the purpose and in the person of God. And we see in the epistle of James, as we studied uh, so far, James says that faith is revealed through a series of tests. The first test that James talked about was the test of trials. God allowing us to be tried because God is cultivating in the believer faith in the believer in him. The second test that we saw was the test of temptation. Does God test with evil? Does God tempt with evil? And if you recall what we said, we said that God is impervious to evil Evil cannot penetrate God, therefore God cannot use evil to tempt someone. He will never tempt someone with evil by using evil. And now we have stumbled upon the third test, and a very important test for us, by the way. And that test is, how do we respond to the Word of God? How do we respond to the Word of God? We saw last week in verses 19 through 20 that James begins describing this test by saying three things. Number one, be quick to hear. Number two, be slow to speak. Number three, be slow to anger. And as we looked at the text, we, we recognize clearly that quick to hear means a love, a craving, a desire for the word of God. And I shared with you that how, criti how critical it is for us to be desirous for the word of God, for us to give ear to good teaching and good preaching. There is an overabundance in this world today of bad teaching, inerrant teaching. There is, there is an, a, 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 an abundance of false teaching and false prophets. God calls us to hear that which is good, that which is right, that which comes from the word of God. He also told them, be slow to speak. And I shared with you last week that every word we speak of the word of God should be measured, should be weighted, should be calculated to ensure its accuracy, to ensure its representation that truly this is a word of God. There is a flippancy that I see in many churches. People throw around verses as if they're like magical incantations. You go to speak to somebody and you tell them you're having a particular problem and they may rattle off a verse from the Bible that may be contextually has nothing to do with what you're experiencing, but it sounds good. 
I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, plans to give you a future, plans to give you a hope. And you go, oh boy. God has spoken. But we're to be slow to speak. Our words are to have weightiness. We're not to just throw out words haphazardly, hoping that it produces something. And then the last one that James spoke about in verses 19 through 20 is be slow to anger. And I shared with you that that word for anger is orge. That means that simmering, deep-seated anger that sits right below the emotions. And specifically, he's talking about being slow to anger in response to the Word of God. When the Word of God reproves us, when the Word of God convicts us, when the Word of God speaks against us, then we're not to rise up in anger and get angry with the Word of God. That's not what I want to hear, God. But I also shared with you too, there is a practical application for that. That as believers, we're not to harbor that deep-seated anger and resentment, that unconfessed, that self-justified anger. You know that anger. It usually goes like this. Well, I'm not really angry at them, but they really make me feel bad. And then when that Anger gets touched. It spews a venom of deep-seated anger in there. Now, continuing today is really like a part two of how do we respond to the Word of God. And we're going to see today, we're going to be looking at verses 21 and 22. And James is in a continuous thought. And he is going to be telling us that we're to put away all the filthiness, all the residual filth that resides in our flesh. And we're to heed the word, the word that was implanted to us. And James gives us a very stark warning. He warns us do not be hearers of the word of God. Be doers of the word of God. Now let me share something about this. Much like the rest of the epistle, these are warnings. Warnings to people not that overly rebellious, but warnings to people who are religious in character. Who's James writing to? We covered this the first week. He's writing to Jews that are in the diaspora. Jews that were far, forced out of Jerusalem. Jews that left Jerusalem, but are believers in Christ. Suffering for the cause of the gospel. And he writes these words to them. Prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not hearers of the word. Now, let me tell you, I could say with relative comfort that no one here has experienced that type of persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. It's a no-brainer. We haven't lost our homes. The government hasn't come in and said, okay, we're moving you out. You got to get out of here. Leave everything you have. None of you have been excommunicated by a church and all, every, all the friends left behind. And so these words take on for us an additional gravity, an additional depth. And we are to be men and women who have ears to hear what the Spirit says. And I know that many times we don't like taking our medicine. But let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the church in this moment. So today we're going to look at James' exhortation in this text. And we're going to examine ourselves by that. And to determine whether we are doers 
or whether we are hearers of the word of God. So what, if, what do you think I've entitled this sermon? I've entitled it, The Doer Versus the Hearer of the Word. May the Holy Spirit convict us in our hearts accordingly. So turn again to James 1. And I'm going to read from verse 19 to verse 23 just to give us the context here. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. So as we look at verse 21, the first thing that we see right here is it is a continuation of thought. And the thought comes from verse 19, right? Third, verses 19 and 20. And verse 20 says, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Verse 21, Therefore. Now, by now you should all know what therefore means. It means in light of what I just told you. Sometimes people say when you see therefore, you're to look and see what it is there for. But literally it is a conjunction. It is bringing together the two thoughts. So he's bringing together the thought of verse 19. Hey, don't be quick to hear. Be quick to hear. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. Your anger doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, in light of what I just told you, he said, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your soul. Now, let me share something with you. The greatest act of devotion and love is obedience. That is the greatest act of devotion and love. And it is the outward characteristic of a believer in Jesus Christ. Believers obey the word of God. That's what we do. We obey the word of God. And it is through active obedience, active, not passive, active obedience that marks the faith of a believer. And it becomes evident. And throughout the scriptures, believers in Christ are called to obey. Now we see this in the Old Testament, we see this in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 28.1, words of Moses to Israel. Now it shall be if you will diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all of his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will see you high above all the nations of the earth. There you see active obedience, right? If you obey and you do, that is active obedience. Isaiah 55, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient. I did not disobey, nor did I turn back. The Lord Jesus Christ in John 14, 23. Listen to these. These are unambiguous verses by the Lord Jesus Christ. He who has my commandment and keeps them, there's the active part, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Who does Christ disclose himself to? Those who love him. How does he know they love him? Because they keep his commandments. Again, John in his epistle in 1 John 2, verses 4 and 5. The one who says, I've come to know him, and does not keep his commandments 
is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this, notice this, by this, by the obedience, by this we know that we are in him. True devotion and love are revealed in obedience to God's word and laws. Why? Because the believer delights in the law of God. The believer delights in the law of God. The believer loves the law of God and the word of God. That's why people, when they come to me so many times, when people ask me, how do you know if you're really saved? My response is always, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Not any righteousness, God's righteousness. If you hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, you hunger and thirst for Christ. That's just how it is. You hunger and thirst for Christ. The law of God is not burdensome to the believer. It's not like, oh, I gotta go to church. Oh, it's Bible study tonight. Oh, I'm so tired. There's prayer meeting. Oh, you mean to tell me I gotta read my Bible? But you know what? We chuckle and we laugh, but there are many, many people who will identify themselves as professing Christians whose heart is exactly like that. I'm a believer, but they don't read the Word of God. I'm a believer but they have no active prayer life. I'm a believer, but they don't participate in church. They won't come to church. I'm a believer, or you hear things like this. You don't have to go to church to be a believer in Jesus. It's active obedience. God calls us to do. Our doing reveals our faith. So it makes logical sense here. It makes perfectly logical sense here that James writes that one of the tests of faith is how do we respond to the word of God? James calls for believers to obey the word of God. Let me say that again. James calls for believers in Christ to obey the word of God. Look at verse 21. James calls for believers. The first thing he says here in verse 21, put aside, lay aside, get rid of, lay it down. Look what he says. All the filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. That word filthiness means those things that are morally objectionable to the word of God. Get rid of it. You mean R-rated movies? Yes, get rid of it. You mean those things that are detestable in the world? Yes, get rid of it. You mean social media? Yes, if it's blocking you from time with Christ, get rid of it. Get rid of all the garbage. Get rid of everything that is morally objectionable to God. Listen, that involves taking personal inventory. What do you listen to? What do you view? What do you read? Where do you spend your time? What has your obsession and your possession apart from Christ? Remember the first commandment? I am the Lord thy God. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, thy mind, thy soul, and thy strength. And thou shalt have no other God beside me. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God. And yet, in this world, we have all those shiny objects that are out there that draw our attention away that take our devotion from God. James' first admonition, get rid of it. Lay it aside. Put it down. 
Put aside all that filthiness. He goes on to say, put aside all that wickedness. That wickedness refers to an inherent evil. An inherent evil. Where is there inherent evil? It's a result of the fall. It's a result of being fallen creatures. We were conceived in sin. We were born into sin. The sin is in our flesh. It's in our natural estate. It's in our natural body. What is he saying? Get rid of those things. Get rid of all of it. Lay it aside. Put it down. It is the fallen nature that produces the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. James says, look, I want you to get rid of all this stuff. Get rid of it. Is there anybody here who says it's morally objectionable to get rid of all that stuff? No. If we want to grow deeper in Christ, if we want to experience God, if we want a life full of the fullness of the Holy Ghost and in the power of the Holy Ghost, we cannot do that with impurity, wickedness, and filthiness in our heart. Lay it down. Lay it down. Lay it aside. James then tells the believers, listen, lay it all aside, but I want to tell you something. Look what he says here. Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. Here James talks about an implanted word. A word that is implanted by God. And there are two beautiful key words here. One is that term receive. It means to receive it in a welcoming way. Hey, how does a Christian respond to the word of God? He doesn't respond to the word of God or they don't respond to the word of God with indifference. They don't respond to the word of God with a lack of importance, how does the believer respond to the word of God? The believer welcomes the word of God because that word has been implanted, James says. It's being brought into a living union by God. I know I say this often. And I know I'm accused of beating certain things to death. But I'm going to beat another one to death today. The dead horse is going to take another beating. And here it is. I have yet to see a person who professes the name of Christ, who calls themselves a Christian, who does not study the word of God, who does not spend time alone with the Lord in prayer, who is not in union and in fellowship with a biblical, Bible-preaching, Bible-believing church, who is a powerful, dynamic, sanctified, spirit-filled Christian. You know why? Because they don't exist. That's why. You want the deeper life? You want to know Christ? You want to know the things of the Spirit? You want to go forward in your life? Listen, the prescript is pretty easy. Repent of your sins. Turn to Christ. Cry out to God for mercy. Be born again. Immerse yourself in the Word of God. Immerse yourself in prayer. Immerse yourself in the fellowship of the church and the service to the gospel. And God will fill your life with vibrancy and power. Now I want to add something to that. It doesn't mean you're not going to go through trials, right? We saw that in the beginning of this epistle. It doesn't mean you're not going to go through hard times. It's not going to, it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be times where tears are going to flood your soul. It doesn't mean that you're going to be immune from sickness. You're going to be immune from death. You're going to be immune from the betrayals of this world. That's not what it means. What it means is that God will enable, God will equip, 
God will guide and God will lead and God will flood your soul with his presence. This is the word of God implanted in the heart of the believer. This is the word of faith that comes to the believer by hearing the word of God. Romans 10, 17. This is good seed that fell on good soil and produced fruit some 10, some 20, some 30-fold. This is the word that the Apostle Paul speaks from in Ephesians 1.11 when he states, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Only the believer in Christ bears God's living and true word. There's a lot of half-truth that's going out there today. A lot of half-truth. I was commenting to a brother on the other day. I said, it appears that in the church, people have abandoned biblical and spiritual discernment. In anything that sounds Christian, people flock to and they run to. Oh, did you hear what's going on here? Oh, did you hear what's going on here? Oh, you know, this one came. Oh, I spoke to someone who was there and they said this, that, and the other thing. And when you apply biblical truth against it, you find that things are lacking. Listen, there's a reason in this church that on Sunday we preach the word of God, that on Tuesday we teach the word of God, that on Wednesday we're on our faces before God, seeking God. There is no other prescript. People can use all the fog lights and all the machines they want, and they can cater to the unbelieving world, but there is one formula for growth, and that is the preaching and the teaching of the word of God. That's it. I'll never forget the time I got the opportunity to speak to one of the most renowned people in the church planting business. This guy has written books upon, I mean, this guy's a heavy hitter. He's written books on this, and I'm not going to say his name, but if you're in the church world, you'll know who he is. I had a half hour with him on the phone. And this is when we were first starting out as a church. I said, look, I'm starting out as a church. What, what tips can you give me? And the man said, well, there are some great things you could do with Google to get your churches, you know, when people do a search on your church to get it prioritized so that your church comes up First, and, and you know, you should consider kind of social media and Facebook, and you can do this on Facebook, and you probably need to get a connection to Instagram and, and do that, and maybe you could use Twitter, you could open up a Twitter account, and this went on for a half an hour. Now, I came out of the corporate world. I know all this stuff. I was in sales and marketing, so I know this stuff, right? So I probably could have told, I probably forgot more than he was telling me, to be honest with you. But my heart was grieved. He never once said, brother, bring your people together. Get on your face and cry out to God. He never said, how are you preaching the gospel? How are you teaching the gospel? How are people coming to hear the word of God? He never said, hey, get together fast and pray and ask God for a move of the Holy Spirit. He never even said to me, brother, what is the spiritual condition of your life? I could have been an apostate, a reprobate, a false prophet, and he never once challenged me or my call or anything. And I'm talking about this is a big dude. My God off that phone. I shook my head. I said, what an absolute waste of time this was. I took his book and I threw it in the garbage. Where are the men of God? 
who will tell you, preach the word, preach the word, preach the word. Preach it over and over and over again. If you're going to accuse me of anything, accuse, accuse me of not shutting up, of constantly going back to the word of God, of pounding the word of God, pounding the word of God. I think I said this several weeks ago, and I'm not, believe me, I'm not preaching self, so, so please don't misunderstand this, but I remember there was somebody who came to church and they said these words to me. Man, you pound the Bible. I said, that's deliberate. That's deliberate. I pound it. You know what I want? My heart's desire is the person who's been exposed to Christianity, the person who's been exposed to church, the person who sits there believing that they're saved would get unraveled. They would hear the word of God. They would contemplate as I contemplated one time in my life. Maybe I'm not saved. And rather than running to him and telling him, don't ever question that if you would confess Jesus, if you accepted Jesus, don't ever do it. No, get guilty. Come and repent before God and say, oh my God, I'm lost. I'm a sinner. God saved me. That's what I pray. This morning as we met for prayer before the service, I quoted Jeremiah 29, 23. Love that verse. The prophet Jeremiah says, Is not my word a fire and a hammer that shattereth the stone? Fire burns. A hammer breaks. You know what's needed in the churches today? More burning and more breaking. Break the hardness of sin and indifference to Christ. Look at verse 21 again. James says this, In humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. That Greek word there for the word save is so-so. It means to deliver from eminent danger. What's the eminent danger? The loss of your soul. The loss of your soul. And the believer's response to the word of God, and it's part of obedience, is submission. Yielding to the word of God. We call this lordship. That's what we call this. It's lordship. We come to Christ as Savior and Lord. This isn't a new theology. This goes back to the beginning of the gospel in Acts. In Acts 2.36, Peter preaching upon Pentecost said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, speaking of Jesus, made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Peter said this in the opening of his second epistle. He said, Simon Peter, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Christ is Lord to the one who comes to faith in Christ. By the way, that's not a tradable option. I've heard people say, well, I accepted Jesus as my Savior. I just haven't accepted him as my Lord. Well, then you haven't accepted Jesus as Savior. He doesn't come on your terms. You come on his terms. And the word of God said that this Christ is both Savior and Lord. And you bow before him. And as a result, if you are truly born again in Jesus Christ, you submit yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that translates into a complete submission, an absolute complete submission with total obedience to the gospel. Total obedience. And to show this, James encourages these believers He's going to contrast true living biblical faith 
with those who intellectually accept Jesus. Look at verse 22. Powerful, powerful text. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Here we see, as we see throughout Scripture, right, Tuesday night, how many times do you hear me talk about compare, contrast? We're going to compare and contrast. James is going to compare and contrast the one who hears the word of God versus the one who does the word of God. Let's look at some of the key definitions that is here. Now, the word doer in the Greek This is really complicated, so I really need you to listen. The word doer, it means someone who does. Actually, it goes a little further. It means a a person who performs. A person who performs. Someone who carries out the things that they've been charged with. And the word hearer simply means... A listener. That's all it means. A listener. So what's the contrast and compare? One who does versus one who hears. Right? Real complex stuff. Right? Now the doer of the word of God is the person whose life has been impacted, changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the person who surrenders himself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Their life is so impacted that the gospel translates itself into works of righteousness. Now, I want to I just say something right away. We're not talking about perfection. Can we get that one out of the way? Because every time I have this conversation, you mean to tell me I never sin? No, you're going to sin. Well, let's put that out there. We're not talking about perfection. But we are talking about people who walk in the truth, people whose lives have been changed, people who have been translated by the power of the gospel. That's what we're talking about here. And the power of the gospel changes them in every way. Romans 1.16. You guys know Romans 1.16? Romans 1.16. Paul says this statement. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, a lot of times this verse, believe it or not, goes misunderstood. For instance, you probably heard a lot of times that the word for power is dunamis, and dunamis means dynamite. That's not what it means. All it is is dunamis is the root word from where the word dynamite comes. But what dunamis means is changed by the inherent power of God. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. They are changed by the inherent power of God. God is the agent of change. God is the one who supplies power. God is the one who brings this about. The believer hungers and thirsts for God. Why? Because the change brought about in them is by God himself. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you probably know this verse too, right? Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All the old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. Who's the agent of change? God. Who's the one who quickens them to life? The Spirit of God. How are they changed? By the blood of Christ, the second person of the Trinity. All these things come together. God is the agent. God is the causal. God is the renewer. And God is the one who regenerates. The believer then goes from satisfying themselves to a deep desire to satisfy God and to live in his righteousness 
As a result, the believer delights in the law of the Lord. You know, one of one of the greatest experiences, I, I, I love Tuesday nights, our Bible study. I love it. Because at the end, when we take questions or there's observations or there's comments, I get to see and hear when the lights come on upstairs, when it reconciles to them, when it makes sense. And there's a delight in that because I delight in the word of God and I want others, I want all of you to delight in the word of God. Nowadays, we see so many professors of Christ, but few that possess biblical truth. And and, and it raises a question in me. When did the gospel become impotent and unable to change a person's life? When, When did the church accept that all we have to do is accept Christ? as my personal Lord and Savior and and, and not be concerned with evidence of a new life in Christ. And I'm going to venture a guess. I think I know the answer. And I think the answer is when the gospel became all about man. When the gospel became all about man, what's in it for me? How will I benefit? What will my life look like? Let me share something with you. A wrong view of God. This is my personal opinion. I'm not dogmatic about this. But a wrong view of God usually begins with a wrong view of man. I'm just going to tell you that flat out. If man is in the exalted place, if man's pride does not allow him to become humble, then that person invariably is going to have a wrong view of God. When man becomes the epicenter of God's work, when the benefit of man and the glory of man becomes more important and emphasized than the glory of God, then we get the gospel wrong. In our society, those that fail to obey. What do we call in our society? Those that fail to obey civil law and criminal law. What do we call them? We call them criminals, right? What identifies a criminal? A criminal is someone who broke the law and subsequently was punished for breaking the law and was found guilty for breaking the law. That's what we call criminals, is it not? Why do we think then a violator against the law of God is immune? That they're not unbelievers. That the constant habitual violation of the law of God reveals unbelief when there are no marks of righteousness associated with that. Jesus, listen, Jesus speaks extensively about this in his ministry, but I just want to focus on one portion, and that was what we used for our scripture reading this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 again. I want you to see this. Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 through 17, and we're going to look at verse 20. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will know them by their fruits. Now, let's stop right there. What is fruit? What is fruit? It's a byproduct, is it not? Fruit is a byproduct of a seed that was planted. Do we all agree that's true? If you plant corn, you don't get broccoli. If you plant corn, you get corn. If you plant broccoli, you get broccoli. If you plant apples, you don't get oranges, nor do you get grapes. You get apples. Jesus is using an agricultural feature of the day. Why? Because Why in parables did Jesus do that? Because it's relatable. It's straightforward. We're all on the same page here? So listen to the words of Christ. 
You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? There he's asking a rhetorical, obvious question. Right? The question is, you're not going to get grapes from thorn bushes. Right? So everybody nods their head. They go, yeah, yeah, that's true, Jesus. I get it. I get it. Look on. Notice these words now. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. Stop. What does every good tree produce? Good fruit. Notice the next statement. But the bad tree produces what? Bad fruit. Bad byproduct. Sin begets sin. Righteousness begets righteousness. So what's the conclusion Jesus draws? Verse 20. So then you will know them by their fruit. Pause. I don't think we have to dig deep into the translation to find out what Jesus meant. I think it's blatantly obvious. Good trees produce good things. Good in that case being righteous, being that which is holy, that which is toward God. Bad being that which, is that which transgresses the law of God. Simply put, good trees produce good fruit, righteous fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. What is the difference between a believer in Jesus Christ and one who professes faith in Jesus Christ. It is fruit, byproduct, byproduct. What is your life producing? The believer manifests godly, holy fruit that gives evidence of the work of God in the life of that believer. We call that in salvation regeneration. They're born again. The old things passed away. But they didn't just pass away. What does Paul say? Everything became new. Everything became new. The unbeliever, the hearer of the word of God, because they've not been born again by the spirit of God, produces fruit that is characterized as bad fruit, which is does not reflect evidence of a life change. This is the gospel. This was the gospel for 2,000 years. This was the gospel till about a century ago. You are in Christ what you show yourself to be in Christ. Paul speaks of this as well in his epistle, in the epistle to Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Verse 19 through 21. Listen to the words of Paul. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. They're evident. They're evident. They reveal themselves. They're seen by everyone. Which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissension, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. Wow. Yet we have a gospel that's going out in the world that says, Jesus, don't worry, Jesus accepts you the way you are. We have a gospel going out in the world that says, Jesus gets us, all of us. We have a gospel that is pulling from the world and seeking to satisfy the world and not wanting to be an offense to the world. Let me tell you something. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an offense to men. So much so that what did they do with Jesus? They murdered him and killed him. Why should we expect any better? Have we figured out the kingdom more than the Lord of the kingdom? 
Do we have this thing so right that says, oh, we're going to acclimate to the world. They're going to become our best buddies. And they're going to look at us and say, boy, I want to be a Christian just like them. Aren't they peaceful, nice people? Church, it's only going to get worse. Do you understand? It's only going to get worse. This gospel is an offense. There's a reason why during COVID, strip clubs could be open, but churches had to be closed. There's a reason during COVID that abortion centers must remain open, but the churches and the gathering of the people of God had to be closed. Because the gospel is an offense to men. And unrighteous people will be evident. They'll be evident. I was hoping to finish this today, but... I got a big mouth and I'm not going to finish. I just want to close with this. The admonition here in James 21 is what? James' admonition to the people is prove yourself. Prove yourself. Prove yourself to be a doer of the word of God and not a hearer. Don't be a hearer. Hearers are those, listen, hearers are those who hear the gospel and they like it for all of its moral and religious values. Hmm, that sounds right. Love thy neighbor. That sounds right. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to judge. They love it for the moral and the religious values. But yet they do not submit themselves to the word of God, nor to the lordship of Jesus Christ. These are what I call passive Christians. They're passive Christians. They fill the auditoriums and the sanctuaries of churches all over the place. You know why the megachurch craze is such a crazy thing and they're packing them out? Why? Because you can go in there There's no convicting word. There's no judgment. You sit there anonymously. I love the music and I love the experience. And you go and you have a good time. And then what are we doing after church? And you go to Olive Garden afterward. And the extent of your relationship with Christ is done for the week. These folks appear orthodox in nature love religious formality and may even know the word of God but I'm going to tell you something they do not know God does this ring true of any characters you may have read in the New Testament does the word Pharisees and scribe come into your mind they appeared orthodox they love the religious tradition they love the formality They wore all the religious garbs. They observed all of the holidays. But Jesus Christ called them, you brood of vipers. He said, outwardly, you look white and shiny, but inwardly, you're full of dead man's bones. You're full of defilement. You're full of corruption. Let me tell you something. Passivity, indifference to the gospel. Indifference to the gospel is probably one of the most dangerous sins. Because you think you're alive and you're not. You're the walking dead. You're the zombie. You're walking around in your sin. You're in your fallen nature. And those that are indifferent, those that are passive to the word of God, you know what their future is? We just read it in Matthew 7, 21. Lord, Lord, did I not cast out demons in your name? Did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not do many other great works in thy name? I want you to get that scene. I'm sorry I'm extending this, but I I really feel the spirit of God really wanting to make this clear. I I, I want you to get this scene. They have spent, some of them, millenniums 
awaiting the great judgment. So they died, and they didn't go to the temporary heaven. They went to the temporary hell. And now they have their day before the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation tells us he's going to be seated upon the throne. They're going to see the holiness of God, the purity of God, everything around them. And in that moment, they are going to convince the living God, the Lord of all creation, that he's wrong. And they're going to stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, look at all the good things that I did. I was a preacher. I was an evangelist. I prophesied in your name. Lord, if that's not good enough, here's another one. I cast out devils. And it was in your name. And I did great works and great miracles in your name. And I'm sure it'll go on and on. Lord, I had a church of 10,000. Lord, I did this. Lord, I did that. Lord, you gotta be wrong with this. And Jesus says, depart from me. I'll put it in a little bit more graphic terms. Get out of my sight. For I, the Lord of all, I never knew you. That term could be translated emphatically. You know what that means? That means that the Lord Jesus Christ says, I never, ever, ever knew you. It wasn't an issue that you were mine and you fell away. The issue is, you were never mine. And you, your entire life, you practice lawlessness against me and against my word. And we all pause and we all say, how can that be? This is the very reason why James says, prove yourselves doers of the word. The manifest byproduct of our life is righteousness like Christ. Works that honor God, not take glory from God. Deeds that give indication of our new life in Christ if we were regenerated and born again by the Spirit of God. And so James tells us, prove yourselves to be doers of the Word of God. Verses hearers. And we're going to pick up with this next week as we look at the hearer of the Word of God. But I want to close with this scripture. I keep closing, and I'm sorry, but every time I want to stop, I really believe that there's more to this. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Turn your Bible, 2 Corinthians 13.5. If you don't know this scripture, I'd encourage you to mark this scripture in your Bible. This is the Apostle Paul talking to the church at Corinth. A church that had gone through multiple gyrations, falling back into iniquity and sin and then purifying themselves from from it. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. Test yourselves and see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust 
that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Test yourselves. Listen, that's an admonition to everybody. Test yourselves. You know why we go through trials sometimes? Because the Lord tests us. Now the Lord knows that we're saved if we are saved. It's not like the Lord has to figure out, is Mark really saved? Or let me give him a test. No, he knows that. But he awakens faith within us to solidify and strengthen us for our life in Christ. So the admonition is test yourselves. See if you're in the faith. What do you have to lose unless you fail the test? Let's pray.